This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephan Cox. Today, what happens if, or more likely when, Trump refuses to accept the results of the November election? Protect the Results is a coalition of national organizations led by Indivisible and Stand Up America that is dedicated to coordinating nationwide daily nonviolent protests until all the votes are counted. We speak with Indivisible's Chief Communications Director, Sarah Dahl, to hear more about the timeline and about how you can get involved. That's next. With Joe Biden polling up in double digits nationally, we should feel confident going into the November 3rd election. But what keeps a lot of us up at night are the many ways that Trump could try to steal the election. Uh, If anybody read Barton Gelman's recent piece in The Atlantic, they know what I'm talking about. They've probably been awake with me. So uh, in response, Indivisible has teamed up with Stand Up America and dozens of other groups for a project called Protect the Results, which will mobilize a national response if Trump tries to declare victory before all all of the votes are counted, and we have invited on Indivisible's Chief Communications Director, Sarah Dahl, to tell us about the plan. Hey, Sarah, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. We got so many questions about this, so I'm just going to jump right on in. Um, you said in a recent meeting that you have a high level of confidence that Trump is going to try to hold on to power if he loses. This certainly squares with my math. Um, let's run down some scenarios. What are some of the things that we expect that he might try? Yeah, so uh, there are many things. Um, When we started talking with folks like Protect Democracy and the National Task Force on Election Crises, they brought us a list of 100 potential uh, post-election crisis scenarios uh, to begin talking about. I think it ranges from things like Trump could engage the National Guard, the military, ICE, CBP, or federal or local law enforcement. He could direct Barr to investigate the election. He could attempt to halt or interfere with the full counting of ballots. He could pressure state lawmakers. This is one that folks are talking about a lot. He could pressure state lawmakers to appoint electors that are at odds um, with the final election results. Um, He could declare a national emergency. But I think for for purposes of beginning to wrap your head around what could potentially happen post-November 3rd, I think the most important thing to, to think about is that Quite simply, should Trump declare victory before all the votes are counted? Uh, Should he make unfounded claims that the election was stolen from him um, or further act in any way to intimidate or prevent the the legitimate counting of votes, uh, protect the results would activate mass nationwide mobilizations um, to simply demand that every vote is counted. Um, so I think the the two most likely scenarios I think uh, that I think about that keeps me up at night is this idea of Trump declaring victory before all the votes are counted. Just knowing COVID, how many mail mail in ballot states that aren't used to dealing with us are going to have to deal with. Um, I think that's the one that is probably going to be the thing that activates uh, mobilizations. And so that's the specific tripwire. If, for example, on election night, he says, stop the counting. I'm ahead. We know the results. I'm the victor. That would be a tripwire. Yep, that would be a tripwire because I think the 
Um, no one believes, based on all the mail-in ballots that are going to need to be counted across the country, that we will actually know the results on election night. Right. Um, and it's really important for folks to wrap their heads around that. So if he were to say that, um, that would be a clear indicator um, that we really needed to show up to take back control of this narrative that he's trying to sell um, these baseless claims that he has won when, in fact, uh, the voters ha- have not all been heard. I'm going to ask you something directly that I've been asked directly from uh, a number of people in preparation for our discussion today. Why specifically are you calling for people to take to the streets? What are you hoping that that does? Yeah. So I think when you look at the democracy movements around the world that have sprung up um, in response to an authoritarian regime, places like Belarus, um, you know, one thing that they all had in common was massive numbers of people on the streets uh, showing up to demand that their voices are heard, showing up for democracy. Um, I think in a moment where Trump tries to make baseless claims that this election was rigged or that he tries to hold on to power and refuses to accept the legitimate results, our response is incredibly important to capturing back that narrative. Um, we want folks uh, watching news at night to understand that there are people who are standing up to him, um, that there are people showing up for democracy and that this is not normal. Um, so I think the theory of change behind Protect the Results is really is really that piece of capturing the public narrative, which then I think does two things. It helps with organic uh, growth of protests. So people, when they see protests happening out on the streets, um, it gives them something to plug into. I also think when you have lots of folks who are quite simply showing up to demand that every vote is counted, um, it gets increasingly hard for other elected officials to not speak out and speak up. Um, So I think in this moment, the most important thing that we can possibly do is plan the biggest numbers possible of people creatively, nonviolently, peacefully showing up to say, this is not normal. Uh, And we will continue to show up until every vote is counted to ensure that voters have the last say on November 3rd. You are a communications professional. And so I have some more specific questions about the narrative itself. But I, I will just ask you for right now about some practicalities Do you see it with these events? Do you see it a a better play for all of us to flood the major metropolitan areas, say, for example, Seattle here? Or is it better to have a a number of people in Seattle and also have uh, smaller events spread out all around the state? What, What sends a stronger message in your mind? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think back to all of the days of action and weeks of action that we've um, built together together over the last four years. And I think some of our most powerful moments together have been when, uh, yes, there are protests happening in big cities. And of course, that's important. But also the visual of the smaller protests, the smaller gatherings in especially sometimes red places, um, just a few people that show up to be part of it. I think that's incredibly powerful. And in this moment, in, you know, a potential election crisis, I think showing that folks aren't just gathering in big cities and in 
blue places, but in really small communities from coast to coast is incredibly important. So I think folks should both be planning to show up in cities if they can. Um, but for those people who don't live near a city, I think having an event in a town square in a small community is just as powerful. Well, and how do you envision these events going? Marches, speakers, should it vary? I think it should vary. Um, when I think about some of the most powerful moments of protest over, um, especially the last year, the protest that sprung up after George Floyd's murder um, over the summer, I think, you know, the wall of moms and families being out and creative signs, um, really creative actions and ways to be heard. I think that's what we're looking for in this moment. I think people will be planning um you know, program and having speakers. But, you know, I think, you know, the more creative that people can get in this moment, the better. And I think that that serves the purpose of trying to tell a really powerful story of peaceful protest. Um, when sometimes the media isn't inclined to focus on on some of that peaceful story of protest. So I think the more creative we can be, uh, the better. And it does not have to look like speakers and programs. It can look like, you know, families with signs and noisemakers. You have been involved with Indivisible since the very beginning. And so you know better than anybody just how creative Indivisibles are at putting on these sorts of events and attracting media attention. I'm sure we'll see no shortage of that sort of thing should it come to this. Um, You also say to show up at the same place in the same time every day. Why? So I think this moment will be a little bit different than other moments that we've uh, planned together over the last four years. I think if we're truly in a contested election scenario where uh, our democracy is is collapsing somewhat, um, that this is not a moment that folks can show up on an afternoon or an evening and go home. I think it will be very important that folks plan to continue to be in the streets and to continue showing up with a cohesive message um, day after day until this is resolved. I think right now, our best advice to folks is to be planning through that first week after the election. Um, I'm hopeful that it wouldn't last longer than that. I think if it does, we're probably back at the drawing board to think about uh, some next steps. Um, But showing up day day after day, the same place, same time, um, gives folks the ability to capture some of the organic energy that I think will be created in this moment and give folks some certainty about what to plug into if they aren't sure. You mentioned longevity, and I, I have a specific question about that in a second. But I, I will also mention something that uh, the website uh, stresses, and that is coordination between not only indivisible groups in the state, but also other progressive groups uh, across the state and the region. Can you talk about the importance of this and, and letting certain groups lead in this scenario? Yeah. Um, so two things. I think, you know, nationally, we've worked really hard over the last six months or so to build a big coalition of national organizations that have uh, grassroots networks um, to plug into these events. So folks like Move On and Sunrise and Public Citizen and Stand Up America. Um, we've got unions, SCIU and CWA, um, some, some never Trump groups, Republicans for the Rule of Law, Let America Vote. So I think, you know, we have done that so that we can build big crowds and to plug 
people in who maybe aren't connected locally. Um, we don't think that this should just be indivisible groups. I think to tell the, the story that we need to tell in this moment is going to have to be everybody. And that's going to require indivisible groups and move on leaders working together with lots of others throughout the community. Um, coalitions that lots of groups may have already built, um, some connections you know, that are yet to be made, um, but working together to make sure that um, that folks are, you know, cohesive in their message of counting every vote and working together to make these the biggest events that they possibly can. And I think in lots of places, I would encourage indivisible groups to really be working with um, organizers who have been organizing in the community for much longer than lots of indivisible groups, lots of organizations who are led by people of color, um, groups who are still out there protesting um, to say that Black Lives Matter. And I think thinking very intentionally about the coalition that you're building um, and making sure that, you know, we we let folks lead. Um, and if that means stepping back and really listening and centering voices of some of the most impacted under this administration, people of color and marginalized communities, I think in this moment, that's going to be particularly important. Yeah, agreed. And, and I would also ask you, are you encouraging any coordination with, uh, say, friendly Democratic state and local electeds, mayors, people like that? So uh, nationally, uh, I cannot coordinate with candidates or uh, uh, folks who are in office just because of the setup of Protect the Results and um, needing to remain uncoordinated. I know lots of groups are talking to, to their local elected officials, to mayors, to make sure that mayors understand the plan. Um, and when the time comes, having those people willing to be getting out into the community and joining some of these efforts to say that this is the moment that we need to all show up to say that every vote has counted. So while we're not doing it nationally, I think this is something that lots of coalitions and local organizations are talking about and trying right now to put a plan in place so that these folks are involved if and when the time comes. I think that's very smart. And of course, we have being a blue state here, we have a lot of very friendly uh, Democratic politicians on our side. You mentioned the duration, and I think this is something that a lot of people have uh, questions about, and they may not be answerable, but I will just ask you, you know, there are several dates on the calendar after election along the way to Inauguration Day on, on January 20th. There's December 14th is when the electors meet. Uh, the new Congress counts the electoral votes on January 6th. Any specific plans, potential plans uh, on those dates if things extend that far? I hope they don't. <laughs> That's the truth. Yeah. I, I mean, truly, I hope they don't. You hit on some of the dates. So um, December 8th is the safe harbor deadline. That's one that lots of folks are talking about. Um, it's when states have to resolve some of the disputes about appointment of electors and the slates that they'll end up um, sending to the governor or to the secretary of state to eventually go to Congress. Um, I know that groups are starting to think ahead to that date. It would be a moment of escalation. I think if we were still in a crisis at that point, um, December 14th is the other when Congress comes back as some of the others. Um, I hope I don't, you know, I, mm, I'm going to say, I don't want to jinx it, uh, truly. Uh, I don't I don't think that it will get to that point. But if it does, I think coalitions like Protect the Results and, and others will be talking about um, 
how we escalate in that moment and how some of our messages might change. There'll be advocacy targets with which Indivisible is, is uh, you know, intimately familiar with. Um, it may come down to lobbying state legislatures, members of Congress. Um, so this fight could go in a lot of different directions. And I think we have to be prepared for all possibilities um, and remain a little bit flexible to be responsive to the moment that we face. And while the protesting is happening, what are some of the things legally that we hope will simultaneously be happening um, in the fight against Trump? Yeah, so I think um, it, it, you know, if Trump is challenging the results and the ballots, I think that there are numerous entities, none of which are protect the results, uh, will be involved. They will also be filing lawsuits. So I think you know we will be closely watching what the Biden campaign is doing. Um, folks like the party, like Mark, uh, I, I, I can never say his last name, um, Mark Elias. Elias? Elias, yeah. I'm not sure either. It every time. Uh, you know, all of those folks will be involved in the legal fight. And then I think state and local officials will have roles to play. Um, I think, you know, you, you have mentioned that, you know, your AG is already thinking about preparing challenges. Yep. Um, and I think that that will be true in many places across the country. Um, and I think while this is happening, it will be important uh, for that protest to continue if that's if that's the scenario that we're in. I have some questions about personal safety, um, starting with uh, armed counter protesters. I think it's I think it's fair to expect that there are going to be counter protesters, and I think it's fair to expect that a number of them are going to be armed. What is the plan in your mind for dealing with that? Yeah, I think it is uh, it is both important not to, uh, overstate the potential. I think, you know, we definitely do acknowledge the risk. Um, this is a risk that many indivisible groups have faced for the last four years. Lots of folks who have shown up in red places, especially over the last four years, have done so with counter protesters almost every single time. Um, and there's no one thing that I can say that anyone can say or that we can do as a coalition um, to make these events safe if a uh, armed militia or domestic terrorist group decides to show up. Of course. Um, I think that's the risk at any event that we do, and it is heightened here. Um, the best thing that we can do and the best way to think about it is that we show up in huge numbers. Um, it's like Boston did when they stared down the Proud Boys. Um, I think it means that indivisible groups should be thinking very intentionally about their recruitment plan for these events to get as many people out as, out as possible. Um, it's why we nationally have built up the coalition that we have to ensure that these hundred plus national organizations with big lists and lots of people are plugging into those events so that we can make them big. Um, I think it's also important that we listen to experts uh, who have looked at protests around the world, places that um, regularly face uh, threats of, of right-wing violence and um, things like armed militias. Um, we're doing that next Wednesday with our friends at Greenpeace for our de-escalation and safety training, um, which is at 4 p.m. Pacific and 7 p.m. Eastern. Uh, we'll get everyone the links. Um, but I think it's also, you know, it's important in this moment to understand that the truth is that the threat of, you know, violence doesn't go away if we choose not to show up in this moment. In fact, it will embolden right-wing militias. It will mean that 
you know, law enforcement, CBP and ICE will continue to terrorize communities um, if we allow Trump to get away with what he would like to get away with in this moment. So I think for us, showing up is not an option. Um, we will do everything that we can to keep people safe. And then I think groups who are planning local coalitions, who are planning these events, who know their communities, should be talking really intentional about safety plans. You mentioned the trainings, and I want to circle back on that because I want to get as much information as I can from you on that. I know that you're offering, you did offer one training. There are two others that are upcoming. I want to make sure that everybody's aware of all of these. I also want to talk about uh, police presence uh, and pressure, and what should we know specifically about our rights when protesting? So uh, I'm going to plug another uh, Protect the Results resource. So we have a host toolkit that we've worked really hard with partners on putting together. Um, It's available at bit.ly slash PTR toolkit. And that's really just so I could remember the link. Um, We have some great Know Your Rights materials in there from our friends at ACLU. I think generally I would stress that Um, Your rights are strongest when you're in a traditional public space, um, streets, sidewalks, parks. Um, But I really would encourage folks to think about their local plan um, to read through some of this advice from experts like ACLU. I would also encourage folks to um, think about inviting legal observers to their events, which folks can do through the National Lawyers Guild, which has a great uh, program called the Mass Defense Program. Um, where you can reach out and get connected with a, uh, a chapter near you. Um, and can, you can request things like legal observers to have on hand at your events um, should you need them. I can actually give the URL for that right now. It is uh, nlg.org slash mass defense program, all one word. So we'll finish up on a, on a few listener questions for you. Uh, and the first one is about COVID. We know that we're, we're spiking again nationally. And I think a lot of people who are in high risk groups who are thinking they may not, it may not be a good idea for them to be out there. Are there things that they can do uh, if they can't go out and, and protest in the streets? Yeah, so uh, a couple of things. I think um, uh, folks should weigh their individual risk. I will say that there is going to be plenty of work for everyone to do immediately after the election. Um, We at Indivisible will be running something called ballot curing programs, which will uh, involve getting in touch with voters um, and making sure that their, their ballots are counted Um, When there's a problem, I think folks will be able to plug into that virtually. Um, But also the map at protecttheresults.com does actually have uh, the ability for folks to register virtual events. While I would prefer all events to be in person, I think, you know, of course, there there will be folks who cannot show up for one of many great reasons. And thinking about putting together a virtual event, um, I think that's a great option. And then I think over the course of this crisis, depending on what the scenario looks like, it's very likely that there will be other calls to action, um, other advocacy things that people can do from home, whether it's reaching out to local elected officials and putting pressure on, um, 
many of the things that individuals have been doing for the last four years. So um, I think we're thinking a lot about that and there will be more ways to plug in as we get closer to that moment. Other calls to action, I assume that people will be able to learn more about that at indivisible.org and or protecttheresults.org. Uh, so uh, as Rachel Maddow is, is want to say, watch this space. Uh, some people were questioning why 5 p.m., why not during the day when it would be safer? I suspect this has to do with coinciding with the news cycle. Yeah. It does. So, uh, you know, local news uh, typically airs at 5, 6, and 11. Um, I think back to the Nobody is Above the Law protest, which many indivisible groups participated in in 2018. Um, Some of the visuals that came out of the protests uh, just at dark with light brigades, which indivisible groups have uh, made a little bit famous over the last four years, uh, things like that. Um, I think that visual is really powerful. More importantly, I think that if we see Trump say something on election night or the morning after, it's incredibly important that we have a response within the first 24 hours. Um, But ultimately, I think this is up to local coalitions who are making the right plans with things like safety in mind. Um, If a local group and coalition decides that the best time to protest is noon on the 4th or 8 a.m. on the 5th, Um, I think that's wonderful. And local groups should make those decisions for themselves. We set 5 p.m. as just a a planning point for folks who are asking uh, how they should begin to start thinking about these events. But ultimately, it is it is every local coalition's call about when they decide to show up uh, down to the exact hour. Good. Not set in stone. So that, that's good to know. And then I'm going to read this question verbatim because I think it's very important. And this circles back to the narrative question. Uh, Black Lives Matter protests have endured violence by people not involved with BLM. And that gets all the media attention. How do we keep control of the media narrative? Yeah, it, and it's a great question. So I would say we are working on some things here nationally um, and we're encouraging groups to think about and plan for this themselves. Um, So I think first, it's about really being intentional and explicit about our commitment and local groups' commitment to peaceful, creative, nonviolent action. I think it's about inviting reporters to your events. There is great information in the toolkit about how to advise your events. Um, It's about taking tons of photos and videos and getting that out to Uh, local media stations and bloggers and reporters immediately after an event. Um, It's about identifying someone in your group that's at the event who's going to be live shooting it for Twitter and making sure that your local reporters have that kind of information. Um, We're going to have a way for folks to be able to drop some of this this footage, this B-roll, whether it's photos or videos, into a central repository that um, we will be going through and systematically sending out the story of peaceful protest that we think is worth telling um, to local and national media stations across the country. I think if we do this and we ensure that we're we're giving folks the right footage to be able to tell the real story of what's happening, I think we will be successful in, in keeping the narrative and capturing the narrative. I think the more creative that you can get, the better. Um, like I said, I think when I think back to the last year and the moments that have really captured the media's attention, it has been things like the wall of moms and the dads with leaf blowers. Um, so I think as long as folks are thinking creatively about the story that they want to tell and being intentional about it and then working with us to get that footage out, I think we will win that message war. 
I will. So, yeah, we absolutely right. And, and, you know, we have at this point less than 20 days uh, going into this election. What are you encouraging people to do between now and Election Day to be prepared for this potentiality? Yeah. So uh, I think the best way that we can possibly ensure that something like protect the results never happens, which is totally fine with me, uh, is that folks, you know, if you have not voted yet, that you make a plan to do so, uh, that you talk to every voter in your life and make sure that they also have a plan, um, that you plug into electoral voter contact programs. Um, so I'll plug 2020.indivisible.org. We're phone banking into lots of Senate states this weekend. Um, the more of that that we can possibly do, uh, the you know the less likely it is that that protect the results has to happen. Um, protect the results is not about protesting no matter what. It is just a, a mechanism to ensure that we're ready and that folks can remain focused on the electoral work at hand for the next 17 days um, and understand if we do face a crisis when we have to or how to plug in. So yes, plan the protect the results events, but uh, continue to talk to voters because that's the most important thing over the next uh, three weeks or so. And people can go to protecttheresults.com to uh, sign up to host an event and to commit to taking action, correct? That is right. Uh, we have about 175 events on the map right now. Uh, so go and find yours. And if it does not exist, uh, use our toolkit, attend our trainings and sign up to host your own, no matter how big or small. And where can people find the trainings? So the trainings are listed at, I've got a bit.ly for that one too, uh, bit.ly slash PTR training. Uh, singular, and you can register for uh, the two remaining. We also have, we'll have video available of the first one that happened this past Wednesday. Um, but de-escalation with Greenpeace is next Wednesday. And then a training on sustaining events is uh, a week from this coming Wednesday. So we hope folks will tune into those. You know, Sarah, before I let you go, I hope you'll indulge me. Uh, as people who read We Are Indivisible know, you were one of the founding members of Indivisible. I was wondering, what are your thoughts looking back generally over the last four years on what Indivisible has become? Um, I'll get I'll get emotional if I talk about it too much. Uh, and I'm wearing my Indivisible Chicago shirt. So, I mean, uh, these last four years have been, um, I think, probably some of the both the scariest and the most meaningful of, of my life. And I've worked in uh, politics for, for my entire career. Um, I think thinking back to when we, we threw up the indivisible guide on uh, Google docs and thinking, looking and seeing sort of what this has become and what people have, have done with a simple guide and how people have organized in their communities is really incredible. And I think, um, thinking about how bad these four years really could have been if people hadn't stepped up in that moment um, is what really inspires us all at Indivisible to keep going. And I think, um, you know, definitely uh, can't wait until November 3rd, hopefully protect the results never happens. And then I can't wait to see what we do together when, you know, there's a, a Dem trifecta in 2021. Which is really what We Are Indivisible is all about. It's all about the steps forward. Uh, I want to thank you in your part uh, for your part in all of this. And I especially want to thank you for taking the time to, to let us know about Protect the Results today. No, thank you for having me. 
And that's going to do it for today. Thanks again to Sarah Dahl. Thanks also to Kenny Palmer for his help. Our website is indivisiblepodcast.org and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Thanks this week to Catherine Fysiers. Special thanks to Lori Colwell. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.